0: It, it's in front of me for two reasons. One, to keep me on track, and two, to, to keep me in the time limit <laughs> situation. Life has been full. When you live 80-some years, it, it gets full, and it's, it's wonderful. I, I will start with the, my early life. Um, I was born into a family of three girls. I, I'm sorry, I don't know why the back feed. Uh, it, a, a family of three girls. One who is two years older than we are, and a set of twins, with me being one, and Jeannie being being my sister. My father died when we were about two years of age, when the twins were two years of age, so Sally was about four. It was during, it was during the time there must not have been any grandparents that could step in and help, because we three went to an orphanage at that time and yes i don't want to leave you with the opinion of uh, uh, yes we went to the orphanage but occasionally once a month we were allowed to come home maybe on a friday night and go back on a sunday or so but mother had to work it was the only income that was coming into the family Uh, and so we were in the orphanage till about the fourth grade i'm sorry i don't remember much about it the twin sister remembers everything about it, so I can call her and say, what happened when? And it's, it's very helpful. And anyway, um, from the orphanage at, at the fourth grade, mother remarried. She remarried and was married for nine months, and that father died, that, that husband died. He, we as children had never known what alcohol could do to a family. But it was terrible. And I will I will have to say, it. all of us were very relieved when that happened. Mother never remarried again. But the older sister, Sally, was old enough to take care of us while Mother worked and so on and so forth. That went on until I was about 14, and I'm just 14 years of age. And I'm um, going to skip over it very, very quickly. Um, I, I, I I had a girlfriend... Anyway, I became very interested in horses, and we we had the privilege of being able to ride and do a lot of that kind of thing. I had high school girls who were competing, and I had to learn very quickly to compete uh, with them. Uh, at 14 years of age, uh, God allowed me to become proficient enough that I was asked by a family, and this is important in my testimony, I was asked by a family if I would please be willing to come out and spend the summer with them, work their horses. They had a professional trainer, but when they went to shows, they didn't have an amateur person to be able to ride. And that's where my place came in at that time. Okay, we'll skip that right this minute, but hang on to it. Um, By by the end of summer, Mother came to me and said, Molly, it's time for school again. I I need you to be home. I don't want to come home, Mom. I'm really happy with what I'm doing. No, Molly, it's time to come home. Yeah, I know, Mom, but I really don't want to come home. Finally, mother said, Molly, if you don't come home, I will take you to court. And I said, Okay, having no idea what I meant. And true to her word, I end up in court with her. She gives, she gives her testimony. I give my story. The judge says, Mrs. Ingham, I would like court to be dismissed for 10 minutes. I would like to see Mrs. Ingham in my chambers. So mother goes to the chambers, and the, the, the judge said to her, I knew your husband when he was at the University of Washington, and he started the badminton club there. I knew him very well. And Mrs. Ingham, I can go out in that courtroom and I can tell you, I can tell your daughter she has to go back home. But Mrs. Ingham, if you will allow me, allow her to live where she is at, eventually you will get your daughter back. He was a very wise man. So life went on from there and I went on to WSU. I started in pre-veterinary medicine. I met my husband-to-be in an animal husbandry class, and we began to date each other. And from there, uh, we became very serious. We only dated for three months, but we became very serious. My husband, Elvin Culp, I forgot to tell you, I'm Molly Culp, for you who are visiting. (laughs) Anyway, and and I asked my daughter to please raise her hand when my three minutes are up, and she said, no, I won't. But but anyway, um, uh, we started to date, And I was going to church with Elvin on Sundays. And when I would walk through the portico of that little one and only church in the little town of Albion, Washington, my back hair would stand up. And the enemy would say, Catholics don't go in a Protestant church. Catholics don't go in a Protestant church. And I said, I'm going anyway, which I did. So we continued to date. And Elvin said to me, "Molly, I cannot marry you." And I said, "Why not?" And he said, "Because you're not a Christian." I said, "Oh, I can always change." Again, I had absolutely no idea what I meant. None. I had never, I had I truly not heard the gospel uh, in in my heart for sure. Probably in my head once in a while, but I. I can't bring it, it regardless after that a few weeks after that my elvin said to me molly there's going to be a speaker that's going to come to the little town and in our church for a week every night would you be willing if i picked you up from the dorm to come out to the farm have dinner with the family and come to church with us and i would take you back to the dorm?" and i thought to myself homemade meal chocolate cake Little bit of television, sure, be glad to. So I went to church with him on the first night, and the whole family went to church with him on that night, and uh, heard the gospel, went to church with him on the second night, and God really convicted me of my sins, that I needed a Savior. I knew I, was, I had lived a life that was not pleasing to him. So on the third night, on Wednesday night, I had heard the gospel again. And the invitation was to come forward. And I said, I'm not going down that aisle and make a fool of myself. I had never seen it done. I'd never seen anyone receive the Lord. But that night when I went back to the dorm, I cried myself to sleep. And I said, Lord, if you will let me live one more night, I promise you, when they give that invitation, I will go forward. I don't care what kind of a fool I make of myself. So the next night, we are back from dinner and into church, and my husband always sat on the end of the pew. So now I am stepping over him to sit next to him, and I lean down and I whisper in his ear, and don't ask me why I did it. Don't ask me. I did know later on why I did it. But at that moment, I leaned over, and I whispered in his ear, and I said, if I raise my hand to go forward, don't you stop me. He would never have stopped me for the world. I don't, yeah, I do know. Anyway, anyway, when that invitation was given, I could not go fast enough down that aisle to receive the Lord and and uh, they ca- someone came forward and counseled with me but it was only a short time before i knew the verse of 1st corinthians 5:17 if any man be in christ he is a new creature all things are passed away all things became new and i knew my sins were forgiven and i knew i had peace with god about Eight, nine months later, my hus- then my husband told me, I had said to the Lord, if this is the girl that I am to marry on Thursday night, you will accept him. I, I would never put God in that kind of a corner. Laughter we had we had a wonderful marriage, just like any one of you who are married and have had a beautiful marriage. But there came a time when there was an argument, and a strong argument. And I remember saying to God, I know you gave him to me. Because of the circumstances, I know you gave him to me. But you can have him back for a while. <laughs> The song that was sung when I went forward is just as I am without one plea, but that your, that thy blood was shed for me today, whenever that song is sung. Th- the memories flood my mind at that time. Uh, the, the, the Lord has shown himself very faithful, and I will only take two or three things quickly, very quickly, okay, very quickly, as, as to how he has shown himself so mightily in our lives. Uh, a major event happened, and I did ask our daughter permission from the, to be able to give this story. But Vanji when she was about 10, was involved with a farming accident which took all the toes off of her left foot. And God, in his grace, had had me at a place years before where a young girl of about 12, maybe younger, had Her brother had backed over her foot with the lawnmower, and she had lost all of the toes on that foot. But because I had seen that, I knew that our daughter would walk again someday. But it isn't the physical healing that was so important to me. God healed her emotionally, and I am so grateful for that. I forgot to tell you, we ended up having four children, two boys, two girls. Uh, uh, Our daughter, our oldest daughter... And this is difficult to tell. And again, I did call her. I did ask her if I could share this testimony. Our daughter, our oldest daughter, when she was in, and Vandy is the youngest. Our oldest, when she was a sophomore in high school, school came home, and said to me, "Mom, I'm pregnant." And I caught my breath. And God gave me the words of wisdom to say, which were, Honey, God forgave me of my sin. He will forgive you. Let's pick up the pieces and move forward. And that's what we did. And, and I would love to have swept it all under a rug, but God took me to a house where Margie Corral lived, which was right next door to the movie theater And I came into her kitchen, and I think she was making pies, and I'm sure there were tears streaming down my face. And she said, oh, Molly, Molly, what? And she said, and I told her, and she said, oh, Molly, let's go to the bedroom and pray, which we did. Now, when I came out of that bedroom, life was still the same, but it wasn't the same. I knew that I had a, a partner in prayer. For, with us that would sustain our family, would hold our family up, and that the church would, would help us through this, and which he mightily, mightily did. Then we're jumping a long ways ahead, but 2004, I'm in the hospital in Wenatchee, and I had both knees replaced at the same day, and that was Tuesday On Friday, my husband said goodnight as he drove back home again. And on Monday morning, he stepped into heaven. And on Saturday morning, excuse me, he said goodbye Friday. And Saturday morning, he stepped into heaven when he stepped out of bed. God had provided my twin sister to come from California before I went in the hospital. She was there to be able to stay three months with me while I completely recovered God's word, God's God's sustaining power is tremendous. My favorite verse is Proverbs eighteen twenty, and I'm sorry I even have to look at it, but I know I'm gonna, gonna miss it, mess it up. But the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. I can't stop with one. Hebrews thirteen five says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I have found that to be true, and, and God has sustained me all the way through. Thank you.
1: Testimony today, our daughter's singing. This is kind of a—it's kind of exciting for me today, and I'll hopefully share some of that excitement with you. Uh, my name is Wes. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Point. Our pastor is on vacation with his wife, and uh, they're seeing their daughter and their grandkids and having a great time in the greater Kalispell region. Um, Welcome to any of you who are guests. Uh, Any failings that happened this morning will blame on me and not on Gary or anything else going on at the church. Um, We've been studying or we are studying uh, for pretty much the whole month the glory of God and what that means, uh, why God is glorious and God's glory. And then uh, last week, Mike kind of took us through kind of our personal response. What does it mean to glorify God in ourselves? And then today I'm going to talk about Glorifying God in the church, and then Mike and I will team teach, which should be very interesting, over the next couple of weeks on some other applications of what does it mean to glorify God as a Christian. Um, yesterday, if uh, some of you I know were there, that there was a wedding, and it was uh, a very glorious wedding. Glory was kind of a. I kept thinking about that as I was sitting at the wedding. The the groom and the bride were in front of a tree and we were sitting relative to them with the sun setting through the tree where we were. It was just just beautiful. And I saw something I've never seen before at a wedding and that's the the father of the bride whose name will remain not said, but his initials are Dave Johnson. And (laughs) normally the fathers only have a couple roles in a wedding. That's to write a check, that's to walk their daughter up the aisle and then they say, they have one line. Her father or her mother and I, that's all they say. That's, that's it. But if you know Dave, uh, Dave gave his line and then walked up to the pastor, grabbed the mic and said, I have a few things to say. You guys just relax a minute. i got a couple words. And Dave in his life has never said just a few words. And that was funny in and of itself. But what Dave talked about, he gave praise to the groom. He gave praise to his daughter, to their family. He did it, of course, in a completely hilarious way. Uh, but what he did is he reflected on what a great day this is and how neat this was uh, to be able to all of us be together and gathered under God's name in this gorgeous setting. Dave isn't a great example for a lot of things. And it's, uh, Dave is a person I would say is very un-American. Un-modern American, anyway. He's very counter-cultural. What I mean by that is in America... We have a problem, and it's an an eye problem. Not that we used bootleg glasses on Monday and watched the eclipse eye problem, but "I" as in self, as in internal, as in we think about ourselves. And we live in a culture in America where the self, the person, the individual is exalted. We honor and give glory to athletes, to celebrities, to entertainers, to all sorts of things, but not to the team, not to the group, not to the overall whole, not to God. And that's our culture. And I think we need to be honest about that, that there are things in our pop culture that are not conducive to Christianity, to living our life as a Christian, because I don't care if it's social media or it's your favorite news channel or what you're involved with. It is aimed to either get money from you or to encourage you to glorify yourself. I have people on Facebook, I know, that on Facebook, they have the most incredible life. I mean, it's just nothing but spectacular and cool and fun. And that's maybe not really who they are, but they've they've got this image that they've built online. Um, It's a very self-absorbed culture that we live in. There are industries designed to take advantage of that from you and my fear is and my concern is and what I want to talk about today is that can seep into this church that's the culture we live in we can bring it into church and instead of talking about us and God and Christians we talk about me and my and I and I want and I need and I demand Um, I would argue our country's not designed that way. The country was kind of designed by the the founding fathers and a few mothers, but the idea was that we would do things for the collective good. And they perhaps naively thought that people would vote and make decisions, feeling such a privilege to be involved in voting, they would think about the overall rather than the self. And that's kind of the theme of a little bit of what comes down glorifying God, what we're talking about all month, uh, can really be summed up that in your life, in my life, I will either glorify God or I will glorify myself in one way or another. It kind of comes down to that. So I like to read stuff online and like to take a few looks at things, what's going on culturally. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with a rather sarcastic website called the Babylon Bee, but it, it, it follows, yeah, okay, a few people, we have a few fans. Um, it sort of does Christian satire, and it does an excellent job. But they were th- reflecting on the I culture in America, and they made a sarcastic article, fictitious, thankfully, although maybe not, about that we need to update our hymns, that the hymns today are just, you know, we can't sing uh, the same hymns with this, this glorification of self. So they had some suggestions, and I've added a couple here. Uh, one is How Great I Art. That needs to be updated so we can sing that together. In Christ, for the most part, how great is my God, but yours not so much? Describable. Christ, Starbucks, are enough. Be thou my Facebook friend. I could sing of your love for 15 minutes on Sunday. I am worthy of my praise, and the classic, I surrender some. Some to Jesus I surrender, some to Jesus I conditionally give. And those are funny. I mean, I laughed pretty much out loud when I read that. And then, of course, like all great humor, there's a little truth to that. And it stings just a little bit. Because you can sit there and think, oh, that's funny. They're making fun of those other churches. You know, those churches full of all the young people and the millennials. And Well, no. Look at the songs, folks. <laughs> They're stinging us. That's aimed at a church just like us. Those are songs that we sing. And I think it's worth our time to take a look at this and to say... Humor aside, we're like fish swimming in a sea that is full of self-importance. Sprinkled here and there with addictive little electronic things. And it's all aimed at us. We want to counter that. We want to counter that because we have to recognize the glorification of self. When I want what I want, when I want to give my opinion, and I want to rate the pizza that I didn't think was that great, and I want to zing them, all that stuff is our sin nature. It's nothing more than that. It's just sin because we want what we want. So today, I want to try to counter that just a little bit and take a look at what does it mean to be the church and what does it mean to glorify God in the church because if you would look on the back of your bulletins, I'll wait. We don't do this enough, but if you look at the back of your bulletin, it has our church's mission statement. And the church's mission statement is to glorify God in Christ Jesus in the church. That's what we're here to do. And as we'll talk about, I like to say this a lot, we're not a country club. We're not the rotary group. We're not our own little individual thing. We're a church, and that's something special. And so if you're taking notes or you like to pay attention to what goes on, the theme for today, the essential question we're going to look at today is how do we glorify God in the church? And the answer, because I don't like you to be in suspense is walk in a manner worthy. Walk in a manner worthy. Russ read that for us this morning, the passage out of Ephesians. Let me read it to you, and uh, we'll dig into this. So, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Holy Father, we come before you this morning as your people... That you've called out, you are so worthy of our praise. You are so awesome in your glory and in your great love for us. And I confess before you, Lord, that I am <laughs> not like you. <laughs> I love imperfectly at best as we all do, Father. And we, we confess that before you. We ask this morning that you would teach us by your spirit, through your word, that any failings that I would have through my own voice would be corrected by your spirit, Lord. And we would all leave here with this encounter to, with your word a little closer to you and a little closer to one another. We thank you this morning for this building, for your word, for the freedom and the time to meet and study you. And Lord, to praise your name. We ask this in Jesus' name and we all say amen. So if we're going to look at this, here's our verse. Just of seven verses. How do we glorify God in the church? A little context because... You know, that's me. Um, this is the high point of the church in Scripture. If you ever look at if you knew we were going to talk about the church, you'll end up in Ephesians. So Ephesians is a book primarily about the church, and it's not correcting anything. A lot of the, the letters are there was a problem, and so Paul or whatever, whoever wrote the the epistle, was a, a letter to say, hey, fix this. In this case, it's more of a general letter, and it, it is the high point of the church. It sets out some very high uh, standards, if you will, some very high things that churches are to be. It, it's very clear. Um, and so we want to take a look at some of these words before we dig into the Scripture. And the first word we want to look at is glory. We're obviously talking about that. Glory is one of those things that's easy to see but maybe hard to define. Glory is honor, splendor, renown, majesty. And then the one that kind of stands out to is brightness and the use of light. And we all had a chance to witness physical or astronomical glory this last week. where We had a a total eclipse depending on where you were. Uh, That is an example of glory. That is brightness. That is the, the moon in this case wreathed with glory. And it's a physical reminder of what's going on spiritually with God. Vangie and I got up very early in the morning and we drove down to Oregon and drove back and we didn't have any traffic problems. And let me tell you, that is an awesome thing to see live. It was a spiritual feeling. It's like, wow, that is God's, glory. that's all I could think about. That's God's glory. This silver blue Corona around, you know, for 90 seconds to see that. It was amazing. And it's amazing to think that's how the moon lines up. The moon's exactly the right distance, and the sun's exactly the right size, and just all a coincidence, of course, to just, you know, randomly round out. It's really pretty amazing. The word glory, though, more importantly, shows up in the Bible about 300 times. It's a pretty common word. And when you look at it, that idea of the sun is a great physical illustration of spiritually what's going on with God. And we can participate in it. It's not just God being God. We get to participate in glorifying him. The second word we're going to look at, and this is the important word today, is walk. And walk, you need to combine with the, the word that kind of sets the tone for it, if you will. And that's walk worthy. So to walk, in this case, does not mean physically stepping, but it's how you live your life. The totality of who you are, all the decisions you've made, added up together, Walking. It's how you conduct yourself in total. And the word that goes with it there is worthy, to walk in a worthy way. And worthy means recognized as appropriate, suitable, matching to what you believe. So, the, how do you glorify God in the church? We have the definition of glory. How do we add to that? How do we participate in that? Is we walk, we live our life in a certain way that matches our faith. And the Big thing here, Um, it doesn't say you just do that walking on Sunday, but I'll come back to that. So walking, how you live your life. And I tried to think of a couple good illustrations of that. Dave Johnson was almost used, but I didn't have a chance to ask him, and I couldn't make it funny enough. So I looked at history. Shocker, I know. Two presidents, one that walked in a way that was worthy with the standards of America and one that did not. So on the left, George Washington. Soldier, statesman, a humble man, a farmer. People tried to make him the king, and he refused. He ran for office twice, and after two terms said, you know what, that is enough. And showing the most incredible dignity, he stepped down. And he's almost so great that, I mean, they wanted to name everything after him, right? You go anywhere in the country, you're going to see George Washington, this, that, and the other thing. There's a reason for that. He's a pretty amazing guy. And it's almost so amazing we overlook him. The guy on the the, the right is the opposite side of that. Richard Milhouse Nixon, your Belinda's finest product. In uh, personal life, he was awkward. He was paranoid with people. He was threatened by anybody smarter than him, which it turns out might have been a lot of people, at least ethically. He was obsessed with leaks in the government to the point where he ruined his presidency trying to stop leaks. And he is the only president that have resigned in disgrace, set politics... We're still dealing with, historically speaking, the impact of what Nixon did to how we look at politics and who runs for politics. It's a very sad thing. Probably not our worst president, in my personal opinion. There's a, a, He's on the short list for sure, but we had some guys in the 1800s, not good. Anyways, I digress. An example, walking in a manner worthy not walking in a manner worthy. Richard Nixon did not walk in a manner consistent with the beliefs of America. As Christians, we have a set of beliefs. We have a set of standards. We have a set of things that are important to us that God says are important. And we're supposed to live our life in a way that it goes along with that. It, it's consistent with those beliefs. That's supposed to match what we do Monday through Saturday with what we're doing right now. Because we are the most easily targeted people for hypocrisy, right? And that's not what they look at on Sunday. Our friends and neighbors that aren't Christians is what they look at from Monday through Saturday with us. So, church is another term, since we're talking about this, I do want to remind you about this. The definition, people called out to and for and by God. People called out. So when we talk about the definition of the church, I'd like us all to break the habit of referring to this building as the church. This is a building. It could be in the park. We'd still be the church. It could be at the ERC. We're still the church. The people are the church. You, me, all of us together are the church. And there's a, the local part of it, grace Point. And then there's the universal church, all believers, all across the world, throughout all time. We're not a club. We don't have, well, we do have bylaws, but that's because the state of Washington makes us have bylaws to be a, a tax thing. The point is, we're not a country club. We don't take votes on what the scripture says. We don't look at people and say, no, you don't fit into our little country club, you're out. We're called, in fact, we're instructed to grow the church and every now and then you run into churches that kind of believe, they kind of want, no, no. We we want to stay a small little family church here. We don't want your your type here. We don't, you don't fit in with us. And that's too many people. We'll get too big. All those are heresies. Those are country clubs. And there's a lot of country club churches out there. We don't want to fall into that. And it's easy to do that. If we're the church, we're the people. And the important part of that is if the church is the people, then Where is the church tomorrow morning? The church is scattered out in the community. On Sundays, the church is in one place. That's kind of exciting. It's the only time the church gets together. But the rest of the week, we are still the church. We're still being the church. So our purpose is to glorify God in the church. That doesn't mean on Sunday morning only. Purpose is to glorify God in the church. How do we do that? We walk in a manner worthy. So let's take a look at chapter four of Ephesians. And again, if you're taking notes, I don't like to surprise people. So here's the outline. You can fill it in as you want. Or if you don't take notes, then you can draw. I prefer Spitfire fighter planes on the side of my notes when you're doing stuff. Anyways, here's the overall concept. Here's the outline of what I want to talk about. If, how do we glorify God in the church? We walk in a manner worthy. How do you walk in a manner worthy? Well, there's three things here. And Paul lays it out very nicely. There's things we do that are interpersonal. Those are things on the inside of us, interpersonal motives and attitudes, things that we have inside of us. And then there's intrapersonal, which are actions we do that impact other people, things that influence and, and touch in other lives. And there happens to be three on each, which is you know convenient for people that like symmetry. And then Paul, in a great moment, says, I'll tell you why which I love, because why helps me understand things. So let's go through this real quickly um, and just kind of break it down. How to walk in a manner worthy. You do things interpersonally, and you do things intrapersonally, and you remember why. Quick warning. I'll step over here for my warning message. If you're listening to this casually, not quite paying attention, you might pick up a sense from me, and I pray not, but you might, that there's something you can do to earn your salvation. Russ was perfectly clear about that this morning. That was nicely organized by God for this whole service. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot do anything to make God love you. Molly made that real clear. There's nothing, it's the free gift of grace to each one of us, and that's how we're saved. And so when you hear of talking about doing things in our humanness, we sometimes think that there's somehow... Uh, we earn something from God. Well, if I come to church, then God's going to like me and I'll go to heaven. doesn't work like that. The economy of God is not the economy of man. We don't earn our salvation. We don't do anything to get our salvation. So as you're talking and as you're listening and as we're discussing, please keep in mind, this is about the grace of God and this is kind of how we live our lives after we're saved. After we've been Saved by God after we know we're going to end up in heaven with him for all eternity, how do we live our lives now? So this isn't about how you get to heaven. This isn't about earning your salvation. There's no way to do that. You accept the free gift. So please, if you're not listening close, which, you know, shame on you, but if you are, please keep that in mind and, like, write that down on the back of your eyeballs or whatever so that you you get that. That's important. All that being said, we are going to talk about our behaviors and what we do today and our choices we make in life. And, yeah, I might be meddling in your personal life just a little bit because you're the church. I'm the church, and we're the church tomorrow morning. No matter where we are, we're still the church. So walking our life in a manner that is consistent, a manner that is worthy to give God the glory. First off, that walk in a manner worthy, that's not a negotiable thing. That's not a, if you have time, you should walk in a manner worthy. That's an imperative. That's a, like a command. In fact, it's a pretty strong. Walk in a manner worthy. Not when you feel like it. Not when you have time. Walk in a manner worthy. You can dovetail that with 1 Corinthians 10 where it says, In everything glorify God. All the time. All the time you're doing it. Walk in a manner worthy. Do things consistent with God's love. And Paul says, here's how you can do that. First, you do things on the inside. You take a look at your attitudes and your motives. And very quickly, we look at humility. Might just be me. Humility seems to show up a lot in the Bible. Turns out it really doesn't. It just seems to me. Why could that be? Gosh, I don't know. You ever had that feeling? Wow. Zing. So humility. What humility is really is spiritually remembering what Christ has done for you. If you remember that you have not earned your salvation, that Christ earned it for you, that puts you, it sounds bad, but it puts you in your place. It puts you in a place where you remember you're not the greatest thing. Christ is the greatest thing, and you're the recipient of his incredible love. That it puts us all, as humans, on an equal footing. I read the news, I watch the news, and what goes on in Charlottesville? I didn't think I would live my life where I'd see American people being openly supporting the Nazis. I mean, can't we get all together that Nazis are bad? I don't, anyways. A lot of these concepts are the putting one group of people above another group of people. For whatever, it doesn't matter the reason. It doesn't matter if it's politics, if it's culture, if it's race. All that is detestable to God. We're all equal. None of us are more loved by God than anybody else. If that was the case, the Bible would end with what, you know, the Jews are saved and everybody else, too bad. But God came for all of us. When you see the stuff in the book about the Gentiles and how controversial it was and that God loves everybody and everybody's equal before God, that's the heart of humility. And as humans, we're in a culture that doesn't want to have everybody be equal. We want some of us to be above. And there's things that push us and encourage us. If you just use this deodorant, you will be sexy and cool and more successful in life. And women will like you if you spray the spray all over you, which actually kills bugs, but that's okay. Anyways, there's our culture is not designed to keep us humble, right? This is America. We glorify the self. That's kind of what we're all about. So humility is important. And it's even when we do outreach to people, you need to It's easy to step into, oh, I'm a good Christian, and I'm going to reach down to you poor person, and I'm going to help you because you need what I've got. And there's an arrogance in that that we have to be very cautious of. When we remember what Christ has done for us and how we had nothing to do with our salvation, that Christ sacrificed his body, his spirit, was stuck to a cross and died there, separated from his father, that should keep us all on an equal footing with one another. Walk in a manner worthy, be humble. Secondly, gentleness. Pretty easy word to understand, except this was a real uh, an epiphany. When you do the word study, what does gentle mean in the Bible? It's actually best defined as gentle force or gentle strength. Or in other words, gentleness in the Bible, it has nothing to do with weakness. It is the opposite of weakness. Being gentle to Paul when he picked the word he used for gentle is this sign of Be so strong that you can be gentle to others. That being ungentle is a sign of weakness. And again, our our pop culture, you know, doesn't necessarily reflect that a little bit. Think of Dwayne Johnson. I don't think of gentleness. But maybe you think of Dwayne Johnson with a little baby in his arms. You know, kind of a gentle, strong person. Gentle force. That's gentleness. Patience. Most of people's least favorite thing to talk about qualities-wise... Patience, another word for patience is long-suffering. Some of your Bibles, depending on your translation, might say forbearance, which is an old-fashioned word that I kind of like. The idea here is that we want to be the opposite of short-fused. We want to be long-fused as Christians. We want to be tolerant, or that's a different one. We'll come back to that. We need to be patient, and it's really hard to be patient We want things to happen now. I want what I want, and I want it now. If you're around small children, you know what? We're just the same as those four-year-olds. We just use bigger words. But it's still, it's the same. It's the tone of voice. I want this. I want that. We want what we want. Being patient means kind of giving up some of that right. In fact, that's a good way to look at patience. If you're a Christian, you give up your right to be angry sometimes. Being patient means forbearing, responding, and anger. That can be really hard. That can be very hard. There's at least one police officer in the room, and they get yelled at a lot for doing their job. That actually is preventing a person from, like, crashing their car and dying, right? And so they get yelled at for that. That officer can't respond by shouting back, you're an idiot. Right? You you sped through a school zone at 80 miles an hour. You're a moron. They, that would be bad. That that would not go over well. That would be on Facebook. We'd hear about that. There'd be a guy locally would post that all over the place about this bad cop and what he did. Um, you have to give up your right to be angry sometime, and that's a sign of patience. There's some lifeguards in here who are you know under 21. They don't get to yell at people and be mean to them when they get yelled at. That's just what you do. It's an example of being patient. So let's take a look at, those are internal things. Those are intrapersonal things. Let's look at the outward stuff, the intrapersonal actions, things that we do, things that impact other people. And the first one's tolerance. Tolerance in love. The word in your Bible, depending on your translation, might say bear up. And the image is carry someone or physically prop that person up. To be tolerant does not mean, I guess, what we conventionally think of it. To be tolerant means to love somebody so much that you're willing to carry them even if you don't agree with them. To accept them even if they're not like you. That's to be tolerant. And the idea, the image is always somebody holding you physically even though maybe you don't want to, or maybe you're in an argument with them. There's always a a whiff of controversy when you talk about bearing somebody up, that there's a conflict of some kind. And yet, if we love them, if we're trying to walk in a way that glorifies God and the church, we bear one another up. We carry one another when it's hard. All of us are going to go through it. All of us will go through a time when we need to be held up. And all of us will have the opportunity to hold somebody else up. That's to be tolerant. And sometimes we roll our eyes at tolerant because we see stuff, whatever, you know the stuff on Facebook or whatever. That's not necessarily what we're talking about, tolerance. We're talking about loving somebody enough that even if we don't accept them or agree with them, we do accept them. We bear them up. We tolerate them. We hold them up in a tough circumstance. That's walking in a worthy manner, holding somebody up. Second one is preserving unity. And I guess I focus on this a lot as a church leader. Uh, the things that I really think about and worry about or look at what I'm going to talk about next time I have an opportunity to preach usually focus on unity. In fact, if you look back at anything I've ever taught, it probably dealt with unity. What it means is to be in harmony, not unified as a church, but to be in unity. Think of the song. When our singers are singing, they don't all sing the same note, right? There's a piano, there's a keyboard, there's violin, there's drums even. Those aren't the same things. The singers don't sing the same note, but they harmonize it. That is the illustration for what it means to be in unity in the church. We're all different. We all have different opinions, and the Holy Spirit works on each of us differently. But we're in unity together. And so I spend a lot of time worrying about, do we do things here at Grace Point that encourage us to be in unity or discourage us to be in unity? And that's a a tough ones to look at. As a church, we're to be in unity. And it says diligent. That means rapidly, rapidly work to preserve unity. Because God made us unified. It's our sin nature that makes us not be unified. And if you go through the Bible, it's an interesting little study, look through the Bible and every time patience is mentioned, and about what you're about, you know, waiting, be patient, it's all over Proverbs. And then look in the Bible for how many times you're encouraged to act now, to be rapid to do something. And there's not many, but one of them is preserve unity. So if there's a chance for us to get sideways with one another, to get out of unity, we're supposed to immediately move in and work on that hard, hard work, It's diligent work to do that. And that's interesting to me. And then verse 7, and I kind of put parentheses around it, use your spiritual gift. This is one of those places where, well, literally, I taught a 16-hour class on spiritual gifts. We're not going to do that right now, but... If you're a Christian, you've been given at least one spiritual gift and you're to use it, employ it, deploy it, work with it, express it for building up the church. So when we look at what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy, how do we do so in a way that glorifies God and the church? An important part of this is if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be using your spiritual gift to build up the church. Okay. That's a short little verse there that unpacks a whole bunch of stuff we can talk about. And it's fun to do so. If you're unclear what your spiritual gift is, you need to pursue that. Or use that. Or I bet if we looked at your life, if you're active, you probably could figure that out. But to know what it is and to be diligent at using it, that's a great thing. That honors God. That glorifies God. And it builds up the church. And then Paul does this great stuff where he talks about, why do you want to do this? Why should we be unified? Why are we unified? Why are we able to be humble and gentle and patient and show tolerance and show gentleness and use our spiritual gifts? It's because we're unified. We have one body. That's the church, local and universal. We have one spirit. The Holy Spirit enters you. You are empowered by God. The triune God is in your heart. His righteousness is in you. Even though you've got a fleshly body, you've got his righteousness. We've got one hope. This, my friends, is not our home. This is the temporary structure that we see. Matter is not going to last. Spirit will go on forever. We're going to end up in heaven where that will be our home. We have one Lord. That's an interesting word to study, Lord. can be translated as teacher can also be interpreted as master. Your life is not your own. Our life belongs to Christ. When you accept Christ, he is your Lord. And all that that entails. There's one faith. Faith is not from you. Faith is from God. It's a, another word for that. It's divine persuasion. Came from God. One baptism. One event that identifies you, seals you, immerses you in the faith. And one God, father of all. Who's in us, through us, around us, completely sovereign, seven ones, I like the seven ones. I think of the seven ones right there. It's a good little thing to to hang on to. <clears throat> so that's what it says in Ephesians. What do we do about that though? So we look at this kind of stuff here and we say, whoops, now we're lost. there we go. Um, how do we glorify God in the church? Walk in a manner worthy? broke that down two different ways, three different ways. So now what do you do about that? You've studied this. We've talked about this. You've thought about it a little bit. You might've taken notes on it. Where do you go from here with it? Because you're not here just to get some information. This is not a class. We're here to go encourage one another and go out and be the church. I will tell you what I took away because this is important. We're supposed to apply what we learn, right? Right? We get taught, we go out and do something differently. It changes us a little bit. I'll tell you what I did. I'm just sharing it. You're supposed to figure out what you're supposed to do. Because what I'm going to tell you now is not scripture. It's not truth necessarily. It's just what I learned. You use it to argue with me about it. Think how you should respond to it. The Holy Spirit will teach you what you need to do about it. He's taught me this. And I'm not instructing you in application. I'm inspiring you. An application. So I get a little nervous when people tell me what I'm supposed to do with scripture. So I don't want to do that with you. But let me tell you, here's what I came up with for me. First lesson is I want to be active. I don't want to be passive in church. And I learned this lesson constantly and struggle with it. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Being passive is a form of laziness. You've probably heard the term passive aggressive, people that disagree, but don't say anything about it. That's not preserving unity. That's a bad thing. We want to be active. You can actively listen. You can actively reach out to people. You can actively put any of this into action, but you want to be active. I don't know if you've heard of the 80-20 rule. It gets used in economics a lot. It gets used in organizations. And The concept is that 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. I don't know if that's true or not in Grace Point. Let's say it is what could we do with 21%, right? We have a pretty nice church. We have a pretty nice country. We have pretty nice things in this community. And if the 80-20 rule is true, if we just increase that by one or two percentage, it would change everything. So on average, as you think about it, be active. Be active in things. Pursue things. Find out. Get active. Secondly, this kind of goes back to that warning I gave earlier. We want to respond to God's love. We don't obey because we're supposed to. I pray, you're not here because you have to be here today. Unless you're like under 21, in which case, yeah, you need to learn good habits, you little sinner, and get to church and tithe like you're <laughs> supposed to and, and do that kind of stuff. But that's different. Parenting is about setting some habits in motion, even if they don't know why. Yeah, you're going to do Once you're of the age of reason, whatever that age would be, We want to do things because we're responding to God's love. When we tithe, we don't say you have to give this much based on your... We don't do that here. We'll never do that here. That's your response to God's love. We want to make things that you... God's amazing. When you think about how amazing... Chapter 3 of Ephesians that Gary and Mike went through is all about how the height and the breadth and the depth of God's love. When you consider that then walking in a manner worthy becomes a lot easier because you're not doing it because you're forced to do it. You're doing it because you want to do it. Do you come to church? I mean, think about that phrase. That doesn't make sense. Do you come to be with the church? Why? Because you want to be there? Are you compelled to be there? Would you miss it if they weren't there? Or are you forced to do it? And again, that only applies if you're, you know, above the age of reason on different things. Actively pursuing God responding to God's love, making sure you're not getting into that whole salvation by works thing, but your personal response. you just It's the natural thing to do when you think about how much God loves you. And the last one, and this kind of sets up next week, is be the church. Be the church all the time. Be the church at home. Be the church at work. Be the church when you're even by yourself. And this, as a young man, I was saved when I was 14 years old. I won't go into the whole story, but I didn't really get active in church. I didn't follow number one until I was 27, and I met that gal and that gal. They had a big influence on me. I spent, what, is that 12 years, 13 years? With a prayer life. I prayed. I believed in God. I was saved. I knew I was going to heaven, but I spent 13 years. I didn't want anything to do with church. A little bit arrogant, yeah. Yeah. I'd go to a church, they'd talk about, oh, be the church, you gotta do this, and you gotta do this and you gotta do this, and that just ticked me off. I was some kind of Manchurian candidate, behavior modification, they're trying to brainwash me, to get me to behave a certain way. And in fairness to my idiot former self, that I went to some churches that were pretty big on no dancing, no drinking, no whatever, you gotta give up your life as a you know card gambler, as a professional wes, and I didn't want to have anything to do with that. I wasted thirteen years. Could God have used me in those 13 years in a church? Yeah, but I didn't understand that. I thought I had to go to church. I didn't get that I was to be the church, to respond to God's love. Being a Christian means to be a little Christ. That's Christian means little Christ. And that doesn't change in 30 minutes. You'll be a little Christian all the way on the clock until next Sunday morning. And to be the church during your daily life is what Mike and I are going to talk about for the next couple weeks. To be the church, in the church, to glorify God in the church, walk in a manner worthy all the time. Think about those inter- and intrapersonal things. When you're scattered, we want to not fall into the eye culture that's all around us. We want to be able to sing our worship songs and mean it and not kind of be thinking about what we're doing next, this afternoon. We want to get out of the I culture and kind of be in the the Christ culture, to be the church all the time. And you're empowered to do that. You're empowered, absolutely. Let's pray. Holy Father, we pray to you this morning, and we give thank yous for this time that we've had together. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that teaches us, instructs us, and takes your word and and implants it in our heart. And, Fathers, we close out this time of instruction in the church and go to a time of worshiping you in the church. Lord, we just give thanks that we can not worship you. And we pray this morning that we would worship you in spirit and truth. And the things that you have taught us this morning, each one of us would be expressed in our worship of you and in the choices we make throughout the week. And that, Lord, we would be worshiping you in all that we do this morning. We give this time to you. We give this worship to you because you deserve it. And we ask that you would empower it this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.